we're going to start by repeating the Nicene Creed. Now, there are some texts, those of you who are visiting, we're, we're studying our way through the epistles of John right now, and, and we're in 1 John, and we have a large chunk of text. We have the, the entire third chapter today, and as we were preparing in the lesson, the teaching team was preparing the lesson, we began to see how 1 John is not so much a letter, a personal letter written to a sp- regarding a specific situation, although it has elements of that, but it's also, it's also a good chunk of doctrine. It was, a, it was written to convey some essential truth about the church. And at Grace Church, we, uh, we understand that, that some churches love to, to, and feel a need to fill out an incredible amount of doctrine statements on there. Um, but we talk at Grace Church a lot how we're practicing church. Like we are, we are working to understand doctrine and theology through the practice of it, not merely the study of it. The study of it is essential, but there is also the practice of it. And so when we land on what does Grace Church believe, we say that's best reflected in the, the historic confessions of the church, one of those being the Nicene Creed with that. And so I want us to read it today. And then as we're studying the text, as we get into our study of the text, to think about, okay, well, where, where is that reflected? Where do I see elements of that creed reflected in Scripture coming through with John? And as we read this, those of you who are familiar with it, you know it will come very easily. Those of you who grew up like I did, where you, I didn't even know this thing existed uh, till, you know, well into my adult years. Um, it, can be, it can be daunting or confusing. Um, we do use the word in here, you'll say it, it says, uh, we believe in the Holy Catholic Church. In that sense, although we're Protestants, Catholic in this sense is universal. That means all the Christian churches. It's not the specific um, denomination there, but it's all the Christian churches with that. But I want to encourage us that as we read this together this morning, to let the words settle in us to hold them, and then as we study the scripture to see if we can bring them back out with that. So if we could show the slide, and we'll read this together. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again, according to the scriptures, and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom will have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. 
And we believe in one holy, catholic, and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins. And we look for the resurrection of the dead and life in the world to come. Amen. Passport, please. That's the question that I hear almost every time I cross a border is an official who wants to see my passport. He wants proof, or she wants proof, of who I am, who I belong to, where I come from, and what rights and privileges they are required to extend to me based on my passport. Our visitors today have crossed borders requiring passports. Many of us have gone out from this country needing our passports with us. And this document, this small, easily misplaceable document, in certain situations, defines our destiny. It defines, are you going to get in or are you going to be kept out? Are you going to be treated well or are you not going to be treated well? The passport defines us. Well, I'd like to welcome everyone here this morning to Grace Church. My name is John Ray. I'm one of the elders here. Welcome those who are watching by live stream on Facebook. Welcome those who will listen on podcasts. We're really glad that you're joining with us this morning. And we're going to talk a lot about identity today. We're going to talk a lot about, as a child of God, what does that mean? What defines us? So even as we confess the historic confession of the church, join me now as we pray. And um, I want to pray specifically, um, many of you uh, who've been here for a while know Lauren and Casey Grimes, uh, who recently relocated up to Virginia. Well, they're in Indonesia right now. And if you've been following the news, there was three tragic church bombings this morning in Indonesia. Um, And they're there. They're not close to them. They're safe. But I reached out to Casey, and and he asked if we, as his, as still as connected to them as her family, would pray for them and pray for the people of Indonesia. So join me, please, this morning. Father of lights, giver of all good gifts. Jesus, your Son, and Holy Spirit, we pray. And we ask that as we confess that you are present here with us, that we would be present to you. That we would be given ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand and obey what you teach us. And we ask you on this day for mercy for our brothers and sisters in Indonesia who are suffering tremendous traumatic loss, that you would send your Holy Spirit to comfort and to guide, that you would protect and show them a way through this that brings you glory, God. And we ask that you would give us a spirit to grieve with those who have lost. As they had gathered together for church, come to worship 
and been exposed to such violence. God, help us know what it means to be your children today. Children here in Fayetteville, children from Tanzania, children in Indonesia, all over the world, God. Show us what it means to find our identity in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in, as I mentioned earlier, we're in the book of 1 John. We're chapter 3. Let's dig into the text. What marvelous love the Father has extended to us. Just look at it. We're called the children of God. That's who we really are. But that's also why the world doesn't recognize us or take us seriously, because it has no idea who he is or what he's up to. But friends, that's exactly who we are, children of God. And that's only the beginning. Who knows how it'll end up? What we know is that when Christ is openly revealed, we'll see him and in seeing him become like him. All of us who look forward to his coming stay ready with the glistening purity of Jesus' life as a model of our own. All who indulge in a sinful life are dangerously lawless, for sin is a major disruption of God's order. Surely you know that Christ showed up in order to get rid of sin. There is no sin in him, and sin is not part of his program. No one who lives deeply in Christ makes a practice of sin. None of those who do practice sin have taken a good look at Christ. They've got it all backwards. So my dear children, don't let anyone divert you from the truth. It's the person who acts right who is right, just as we see it lived out in our righteous Messiah. Those who make a practice of sin are straight from the devil, the pioneer in the practice of sin. The Son of God entered the scene to abolish the devil's ways. People conceived and brought into life by God don't make a practice of sin. How could they? God's seed is deep within them, making them who they are. It's not the nature of of the God begotten to practice and parade sin. Here's how you tell the difference between God's children and the devil's children. The one who won't practice righteous ways isn't from God. Nor is the one who won't love his brother or sister. A simple test. For this is the original message we heard. We should love one another. We must not be like Cain, who joined the evil one when he killed his brother. And why did he kill him? Because he was deep in the practice of evil, while the acts of his brother were righteous. So don't be surprised, friend, when the world hates you. This has been going on a long time. The way we love, the way we know we've been transferred from death to life is that we love our brothers and sisters. Anyone who doesn't love is as good as dead. Anyone who hates a brother and sister is a murderer. And you know very well that eternal life and murder don't go together. This is how we've come to understand and experience love. Christ sacrificed his life for us. This is why we ought to live sacrificially for our fellow believers and not just be out there for ourselves. If you see some brother or sister in need and have the means to do something about it, but turn a cold shoulder and do nothing, what happens to God's love? It disappears, and you made it disappear. My dear children, 
Let's not just talk about love. Let's practice real love. This is the only way we'll know we're truly living, living in God's reality. It's also the way to shut down debilitating self-criticism, even when there's something to it. For God is greater than our worried hearts and knows more about us than we do ourselves. And friends, once we've taken care of, once that's taken care of, and we're no longer accusing or condemning ourselves, we're bold and free before God. We're able to stretch out our hands and receive what receive what we ask for because we're doing what he said, doing what pleases him. Again, this is God's command to believe personally, to believe in his personally named son, Jesus Christ. He told us to love each other in line with the original command. As we keep his commandments, we live deeply and surely in him and he lives in us. And this is how we experience his deep and abiding presence in us by the spirit he gave. Dallas Willard says this. He says the vision that underlies spiritual transformation into Christ's likeness is then the vision of life now and forever in the range of God's effective will. That is, partaking the divine nature through a birth from above and participating by our actions in what God is doing now on our lifetime on earth. We talked about this last week when I mentioned the Eugene Peterson quote, that the goal of the study of Scripture is not to make you a student of Scripture. The goal is to make us Christians. Sacrificing, loving Christians in practice. Now, if I I ask you, what's the love chapter in the Bible? What would you say? Somebody. 1 Corinthians 13, right? That's often what comes to mind. However, there is more written about love in 1 John than any other part of the Bible. This book is truly the love chapter. If we, if we really want to look at it as far as the number of times and the way that it's addressed and the centrality of the theme, 1 John is the book of love in the Bible. But why do you think we may not, that might not be the first book we think of when we think of 1 John? It's because it also has a lot to do with how we behave. And especially in our evangelical culture, we've been taught, or our culture is so scared of falling error into a works-based religion, of, of somehow falling into the error, and it is an error that we have to somehow work our way into God's favor, that 1 John is often neglected. Because, see, John doesn't see any disparity between what love acts like and what love is. As a matter of fact, as we read this and as as we study the text, we see that, that he works very hard to keep those two connected is that he's very intentional in saying it's not just about words. It's not just about feelings. It's not just about emotions. It's not just about thinking right. It's proved in our actions with that. For John, there is no separation between how we act 
and the quality of our love. And that's daunting, isn't it? Is that daunting for anybody else? Like seriously, who, who in here right now could firmly say, yes, I know what love is. Yes, I am a loving person, and I want to prove it. Here's video. 24-7, my life. Just, look, just take a look at the tape. Here's my checkbook. Just look at how I spend my money. It'll prove to you that I am a good lover, that I am full of love. Anybody want to volunteer? I mean, I don't. Yet, that seems to be what John is saying. He's saying, look, practice it. And practice it in a way that's visible. And practice it in a way that people can look and go, yeah, I, I mean, I look at Brian and the guy I love, you know? I look at Lois. She's a person who loves. Like, like John seems to be saying that with that. And so that's, that's daunting to us, especially in a society that has romanticized love beyond all biblical recognition. Like if we understand love the way that our society conceives of it, the romantic kind, the kind that just is literally comes in and sweeps over us and takes over our life and defies all logic and, and, and breaks free of all obligations and promises to pursue its heart. That's, that's love that's not even recognizable by this standard. And this is a love that endures. This is a love that keeps its promises. This is a love that suffers long. This is a love that, while, yes, available to those emotions, isn't ruled by them. It's a very different kind of love that John talks about. Well, so, I mean, how do we get there? Like, we're asking the question this week, what do you think it would look like if we really lived into this love, if we really lived into our identity as children of God? What would this church look like? What would church look like? What would our lives look like? If we were literally to be defined by love as it is described here. Well, here's the thing that I would like us to consider as we ask this question. First of all, <clears throat> living as a child of God, another way of saying being saved, we could say that, or being a Christian, or being a follower of Jesus, but, but basically... Being a child of God, because we're going to use that language, that's what John uses here. It involves a threefold allegiance. An allegiance to Jesus, which we all get, right? That's the easy one. Everybody says, you're a Christian, where's your allegiance? Your allegiance to Jesus, yes, everybody says that. But it doesn't end there. It starts there, but it doesn't end there. Because what that means also then is that we have an allegiance to our brothers and sisters in the church. 
which many of us would nod our head. Yes, okay, we understand. Church is good. Church is necessary. Church is God's design. It's tough sometimes, but yeah, I get it. But then the third one, the third one, I think, I mean, I really struggled with it. I struggled even how to conceptualize it this week. The third one is an allegiance to ourselves. Not the egotistical, selfish, self-centered, but an allegiance to ourselves as defined by God's love. See, I think one of the hardest things for us to do is live as loved individuals. As being in ministry for 30 years, counseling countless numbers of people, walking through tragedy and trauma, life as we know it, one of the single hardest things I see for us as human beings and even as Christians to do is to allow ourselves to be loved by God. Is that anybody in here? It's me. It's me. I would love to be able to work my way into God's favor. Just give me a task. Let me perform. Give me a checklist. Let me do it. But to be no holds barred, unequivocally and forever loved by God, accepted as I am, with all my faults and everything that I am, and I would say that for us, as modern believers here, one of the single hardest things to do is to be true to ourselves as defined by God, not as defined by culture, our own insecurities, our own doubts, what culture says about us, our biology, or anything else, but to live as defined by God. Jesus fully embodies this threefold allegiance. His allegiance to the Father, his allegiance to his followers, the church, and his allegiance to himself as identified from God. See, having faith in God is not an impersonal assent to a set of theological or philosophical truths. Rather, it involves an intentional choice of allegiances. We say yes to Jesus and no to every other God. Or Savior. We say yes to our identity as children of God and submit every other classification to that. We say yes to the church as our primary community of affiliation and submit every other community to that one. This is that threefold allegiance. So, Amber. What's the first question that you're going to hear on and on and on again now that everybody knows that you are with child? What, what is that question that people are going to ask? Do you know? Is it a boy or girl, right? Is it a boy or girl? You're going to hear that countless numbers of time, right? Those of you who have gone through this, you know. We, we want these definitions, and in a way, we need these definitions. We need to know, where do you come from? What language do you speak? Um, you know, are you a Cowboys fan or a Packers fan? You know, what, like we're always dividing people up into groups. And that's not bad. 
in and of itself, it's not necessarily bad. We have to have that to kind of navigate. We have to have that so that we can kind of get on down the road. Can you imagine if every single individual we met, there was no classification at all? Like we had no idea where they stood, where they were from, what language they speak, what they liked or disliked. My gosh, we would, we would never, we'd never get anything done, right? We would never, society couldn't function. Classifications in and of themselves aren't bad. What becomes bad is when they become the things that ultimately define us. And that's what the world is always trying to do. It's always trying to define us by its rules, by its values, by its practices. As Christians, one of the most radical things, the thing, some, some theologians say this was what engendered the persecution more than anything else, is when they said, ultimately, my allegiance is to Jesus. Jesus is Lord. Not Caesar. Not the other gods. Not myself. Jesus is Lord. That my allegiance is to Jesus. And his love for me defines me. Again, not my gender. Not my biology. Not my skin color. Not my passport. Those things, do they, do they help define me? Yes, but do they ultimately define me? No, they do not. All of those things are subservient to my identity as being loved by God. The poet Edna St. Vincent Millay once said, I love humanity. It's people I hate. I found out later, it makes me sound real smart, right, when I mention a poet like that. I first read that quote in a Peanuts comic strip, okay, <laughs> and later find out it was a poet that Charles Schultz was ripping off with that. Um, but I appreciate the way that the quote reveals our propensity to love in theory, but when it comes to practice, uh, maybe not so much. It's also interesting to note in our text that loving, our loving is to start with, but never end with, the people in this room. That John's very clear in his language when he talks about love and brothers and sisters, that that is primarily identified as the family of faith, the people in church. Now let me tell you why this is so hard. Because church, by its nature, because it starts, is sustained by and ends with Jesus and not with us, necessarily means that it is going to include people that we wouldn't otherwise choose to be in association with. Listen, I love all y'all, like most of you. But if it was just up to John Ray, who I'm going to hang out with, I mean, I, I probably wouldn't even have met most of you with that. Church is a weird duck, y'all. It's a weird place. It's, like, it's almost like nothing else, right? Because we come here with this allegiance to this Jesus. We come to here, here because of this experience we've had with God. And we end up sitting next to people, brothers and sisters from Tanzania, 
Like, how does that happen? People who don't share our politics, people who don't share our affinity in music or culture, people who don't, who don't necessarily even live like we do. They may come from a different socioeconomic class. I mean, now, granted, the church in America is pretty homogenous, okay? Like, in some ways, we defy this because we end up being so set on finding a place to worship with people who look like us and smell like us and act like us. And it becomes very homogenous. But even within that homogenousness, we have to admit there are people in this room that we otherwise just wouldn't even take a second look at. But we're here. God's brought us together. And the command is, love each other. Love one another. Even when you don't know them that well, love them. Even if you don't agree with their politics, love them. Even if you don't like their, the food they eat, love them. You don't like the music they listen to, love them. You don't come from the same hometown, love them. And that practice of love with people that we might not otherwise choose to love is core to defining our allegiance. It's core to defining what it means to be a Christian. Because the world is quick to love based on mutual affections. We're quick to love that fellow Razorback fan or that other person in our business or whatever, you know? But it's also self-serving. It's also self-serving. Church is where we get to practice love in a way that counters that that isn't self-serving. We're practicing being built into the nature and character of God by loving people that may not ever love us back, that may not ever get it. And that's part of this allegiance. It starts with loving the people that we might not otherwise choose to love. Because, listen, if we can't do that here in the church, how are we going to love our enemies? Which is another command in the Bible. To love those who hate us. To love those who are bent on our destruction. To love those who would otherwise want us snuffed out, wiped off the face of the earth. We're to love those guys. How are we ever going to get there if we can't love the person that just rubs us the wrong way? on Sunday morning starts here doesn't end here starts here and the last thing I said is that identity to our true selves is being radically and unconditionally loved by God I love the part in the text where he says my dear children let us not just talk about love let's practice real love it's the only way we really know we're living truly living in God's reality but it's also the way to shut down the debilitating self criticism is anybody here is this just John confession time this morning Anybody here deal with debilitating self-criticism? 
man, I don't know how many times I wake up in the middle of the night and I think about something I said and I think about something I did. Literally wakes me up out of a dead sleep. Oh, crap. Did I really? Oh, I should have said. Oh, I bet you they thought. Listen, if my actions are going to define me, if how I perform at any given moment is going to define me, I'm sunk, y'all. I mean, if you're grading on a curve, it may look good, but I can't let go of myself. You may give me a pass. You might allow it. I won't. I can't. There's just something inside of me that voice that is continually criticizing and critiquing and analyzing. And the only way I know through that, the only way I know to counter that is to live into, to be, have an allegiance to myself as defined by God, by God's love for me. Not by my performance, not by how well I do, but by God's unconditional love for me, which is proven in the life, death, ascension of Jesus Christ that he gave his life for me. He gave his life for me. While I was yet a sinner, a screw-up, a failure, selfish, vain, ignorant, lazy, whatever, Christ died for me. That love defines me. And as a follower of Jesus, I am commanded to live from that identity. Not the identity of the self-debilitating criticism inside of me. And we have to hold these three things together. As I said earlier, we're asking this question like, how do we bring these things together? What would it look like in the church? See, we're real good at the church of, of being good about one, maybe two of these things. But rarely do we find a practice where we hold all three. There's lots of churches out there, and I'll say we here, because I'm not, I'm not judging anybody else. I'm just saying as part of the general overall Christian community, with all the places that they get to go in different churches, we're real good at saying, yes, it's all about Jesus, all about Jesus, all about Jesus, Scripture, Word, memorize Scripture, Jesus, yes, and forget about the church and just be dominated by self-criticism, be defined by the world. And then there are other parts of us as churches. We're all about, hey, let's go do this thing. Let's love one another. Man, let's justice, let's march, let's vote, let's protest, let's write. Scripture, if it serves that end, it's great. And again, self is over at the end. And then there's parts of us in the church say, it's just all about you. It's just all about you being loved. It's just all about what you want and how you feel and what you need. And, and let's make this all fit you. Again, forget about Scripture, forget about other people. Jesus will have none of that. Scripture will have none of that. It is always all three. It starts, ends, and is finished and completed by Jesus, yes, but it involves the other two. We have a threefold allegiance as children of God. Allegiance to Jesus. Allegiance to the church, his body. And allegiance to ourselves is defined by God.
That's why we confess what we do with the Nicene Creed. If you go back and read it, which I encourage you to do, look, that's all reflected there. But if you read it through the lens of 1 John 3, you're going to see it with new eyes. It's It's going to have new meaning. It's going to have new depth with that. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Now, if I was the creative type, I might have had in my other pocket another passport and got someone in my incredibly artistic family to design it. But instead of United States of America on the front, it would say, child of God, or something like that. Because I think sometimes we need something like that, right? Like we need something that reminds us my identity is first and foremost Not how the government defines me, not how the world defines me, but how God defines me. But then again, we really don't need that passport, do we? Because we have a practice. We've been given a practice to live into these things. We've been given a practice of study of the word. We've been given a practice of worshiping together. We've been given a practice of praying for one another. We begin a practice of sacrificially giving to meet the needs of other people in the church. We've been given a practice of going into all the world to proclaim the gospel to all nations. We've been given a practice to welcome those who suffer and who are persecuted and give them a place of safety and a chance at life. We don't, we don't need a passport. We've got a practice here. Part of that practice also involves coming to the table and receiving the broken body and the poured out blood of Jesus. This table helps us know who we are. This table is a place where we demonstrate our allegiance to Jesus, to our true selves as defined by Jesus and to the church. When you come and you take this bread, when you take this wine, you're declaring your allegiance, your threefold allegiance to God, to his church, and to yourself as a child of God. We'll also take up the offering during this time, and it's a time to pray and reflect. But consider these allegiances. Remember them and commit to these practices as we leave here this morning. Thank you for being here.